Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. So hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Professor Ray Dorsey about his new book, Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action, co-written with Dr. Todd Scherer, Professor Michael Ocken, and Professor, Professor Bastian Bloem, who are medical professionals and neuroscientists. So, Professor Dorsey, welcome to the show. Galina, many thanks for having me. And Ray, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Thank you very much, Galina. My name is Ray Dorsey. I'm a neurologist at the University of Rochester, where I direct a center for health and technology. I specialize in the care of individuals with Parkinson's disease. That's great. So you're a medical doctor, is that correct? Yes, I'm a neurologist. You're a neurologist by training and you take care of uh, the patients on a daily basis. Yes. And uh, actually, you know, we're in the setting of the COVID uh, pandemic. I see all my patients essentially over the internet. And so I see them in their home and have been doing that largely exclusively for the last six to seven years. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for mentioning uh, this uh, topic. Of course, it's very unprecedented what we're having now, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so could you just Tell us how it impacted you. Well, as I alluded to, I see all my patients over the internet. So actually, my care for uh, my patients has largely been uninterrupted because uh, I don't have a traditional clinic and I haven't had one for six years. And the setting of this actually was connected to an individual with Parkinson's disease who lived in northern Italy. And he was unable to see his uh, local neurologist because they were quarantined. And so I was actually able to help him. Uh, hopefully with his uh, Parkinson's disease symptoms by seeing him uh, remotely. Our, our Center for Health and Technology also conducts lo- a, large, a lot of clinical trials. Uh, a lot of them are on pause, but some of our clinical studies are entirely virtual, where we see research participants with and without Parkinson's disease in their home by video. So some of our studies are going uninterrupted, while some of our clinical trials of investigational drugs have been impacted. This is excellent. So, uh, in simple terms, you have you have actually been prepared for uh, something like this, so you can continue some of your work, essentially uninterrupted. Absolutely. If you think about it, it's kind of odd that we ask sick patients or research participants with diseases to come see generally healthy clinicians on our terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should be seeing patients on their terms in their homes. And we should be seeing research participants largely on their terms, largely in their homes. And we've had video conferencing software for a long uh, time, for 20 plus years. And we've been using it for the last 10 plus years to connect to people, both in a care setting and a research setting uh, on their terms. And we hope that one of the silver linings of this uh, pandemic is that these efforts will accelerate going forward for a wide range of conditions. This is very interesting. So can you tell me uh, whether people are really willing to adopt the technology? Because quite often uh, people with the chronic diseases like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's as well are a little bit older. So how do they adopt it? Do you ask carers to um, help them with it? Yeah, um 
we always say it's a lot easier to connect by video conferencing than it is to drive 50 miles or 100 miles to go to an urban center. We even in 2014 did a national randomized controlled trial of telemedicine uh, for patients with Parkinson's disease in which patients with Parkinson's disease are connected in their homes to a specialist uh, license in their state. And we showed that this was feasible, that over 90% of video visits were completed as scheduled, that the clinical outcomes between the two groups were comparable, and that each video visit saved patients and their caregivers three hours of time and 100 miles of travel. Uh, right now, we offer care to any New Yorker with Parkinson's disease. We'll see them for free. Uh, they can go to our website, pd pdcny.org. It's grant supported. So we care for 400 New Yorkers with Parkinson's disease from Long Island, New York to Lockport, New York for free uh, in their homes. Uh, this is especially important to do so now when people are confined to their homes and we want to enable anyone anywhere to receive care for Parkinson's disease uh, on their terms. This is impressive. So uh, are you hopeful that after after we're on the other side of the pandemic, the efforts to adopt the technology will continue even more? We hope so. There have been a lot of temporary changes that uh, have happened in the United States to increase reimbursement and remove licensure barriers. If those temporary changes are made permanent, we'll sooner get to the point where more people with Parkinson's or frankly, anyone with Parkinson's disease can receive the care that they need. 40% of people in the United States with Parkinson's disease don't see a neurologist within three years after diagnosis, and those that don't have worse health outcomes and are more likely to die. We think that anyone anywhere with Parkinson's disease should be able to receive care, regardless of where they live in the United States, or quite frankly, regardless of where they live in, in the entire world. These are, these are very sobering statistics. Thank you very much for mentioning this. So can you tell me, so how did you get interested in studying Parkinson's disease specifically? Uh, well, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a neurologist, and during my neurology training, uh, you at some point think about where, whatever you want to specialize, stroke or epilepsy. And I remember doing a clinic in movement disorders, uh, which is focused on Parkinson's disease and others. And I liked the fact that it was a very clinical interaction. You interacted with people, and you could make them better, uh, and they appreciated it. And as a doctor, what more can you ask for than to care for people who have needs, that you can meet those needs and that they can be appreciative of, of them? Uh, so it's been a very rewarding experience, one I've been uh, very fortunate to be part of. That's excellent. Okay, so let's uh, talk about the book. So can you tell me how did you uh, come to writing Ending Parkinson's Disease? So uh, Parkinson's disease is the world's fastest growing brain disorder in the world. It's faster growing than even Alzheimer's disease. And in 2017, uh, an or a conference was organized that envisioned a world without Parkinson's disease. It was a celebration of the bicentennial of Dr. James Parkinson describing the book, describing the condition in 1817 in London. And uh, I was there with my colleague, Dr. Boss Bloom, who's one of the co-authors, and Dr. Todd Scher, another one of the co-authors. And we, out of that, we, uh, Boss and I wrote a paper called The Parkinson Pandemic uh, because we highlighted that uh, Parkinson's was, uh, the number of people with Parkinson's had doubled over the last 25 years and absent change will double again. And then uh, we uh, were fortunate to get the assistance of our uh, colleague and friend, Michael Oaken, as a co-author in writing the book. 
but it really the germination, the seed for this came out of a conference organized envisioning a world without Parkinson's disease. And we wrote a book called Ending Parkinson's Disease that would hopefully make that vision a reality. So you just mentioned the world pandemic. So just to piggyback essentially on the concept, uh, can you tell me why do you think there is not that much of the urgency to address the pandemic of Parkinson's disease as opposed to perhaps something more acute like a virus? Of course, it's a very hard uh, line to draw, but why do you think we're not more into into actually ending it? Well, we certainly need to address the coronavirus because that's here now and then uh, a, a, a threat uh, to us mm-hmm. right now. And it's an acute threat. I think we haven't done a very good job of identifying what are other huge sources of death and disability. Uh, in the United States, 200 people will be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease today, 1,000 this week, 60,000 this year. A million Americans have Parkinson's disease. My lifetime risk, the lifetime risk of many of your listeners of developing Parkinson's disease is up to 1 in 15. Uh, by contrast, my lifetime risk, our lifetime risk, uh, yours, is of dying in car accidents, about 1 in 100. So we wear seatbelts, drive cars with airbags, and uh, look for cars that are safe. We're not doing that for Parkinson's disease. The first response to any uh pandemic, any crisis, whether that's coronavirus or a fire or Parkinson's disease, is to contain it. You know, social isolation, which we're practicing right now. For Parkinson's disease, we're not containing it. We're fueling it um, with many of the environmental risk factors tied to it. Mm-hmm. And this is the aspect of your book that I really enjoyed, to bring that urgency out, to really put this message through, that it has to be addressed. Is that right? Is that what uh, you wanted to? Absolutely. We've addressed as a society uh, other health crises in the past, and they've all had a shared common theme of activism. So in the 1950s, polio was the second most feared condition in the United States. Only nuclear war was more feared. Uh, We had a march of dimes in which millions of Americans mailed in dimes to the White House and to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who may have had polio raise money to care for people with the disease and to develop a vaccine. Hundreds of thousands of people participated in clinical trials uh, to evaluate uh, the efficacy of vaccines for polio. Those were successful. Polio has been eradicated from the United States, eradicated from the vast majority of the world. And now we have no more polio camp. We have few polio campaigns and no polio treatment centers because for most of the world, it doesn't exist. In the 1980s, we had an unknown virus that was causing a uniformly and rapidly fatal condition, and the federal response was nil. Uh, A group of HIV activists in New York and in San Francisco rose up, adopted a motto of silence equals death, blocked the streets of New York, took over the New New York Stock Exchange, shut down the FDA, and uh, raised awareness uh, for their efforts conducted their own clinical trials, ran their own shadow healthcare system, uh, created a national quilt, uh, an AIDS memorial quilt that covered the National Mall and changed the course of that disease. In 15 years, it went from an unknown disease to one with an effective treatment that uh, made it a, a, uh, a chronic condition with near normal life expectancy. We need to adopt the same kind of activism 
for uh, Parkinson's disease. For Parkinson's disease, silence doesn't equal death, but it equals suffering and too often needless suffering. And in the book, we highlight what we can do to prevent the disease, advocate for additional resources, care for all affected, and treat the condition with new therapies. Uh, these are really laudable soci societal actions. So uh, thank you very much for bringing it uh, uh, to the mind's eye of the public. So can we talk a little bit about the Parkinson's disease itself? So can you tell us what are the characteristics, perhaps demographics, and who can be affected? The classical characteristics of the disease, the ones that Dr. James Parkinson described when he saw people walking the streets of London, are a tremor or shaking in the hands, usually worse on one side than the other, slowness in movement, stiffness, which was later described by Dr. Charcot, and difficulties with walking or balance, tendency to have a stooped posture and to walk with a fascinating or short uh, step gait. Those are the classical features. The disease increases in likelihood as people age, likely for the similar reasons why uh, lung cancer increases with age. The time from exposure to different environmental risk factors to the time of the development of the disease is there's a large lag. We know that the symptoms of Parkinson's disease play out over years, if not decades, and actually begin with symptoms like loss of smell and constipation that occurred decades before the classic tremor and slowness of movement. Just like in lung cancer, you don't smoke a cigarette and then develop a lung cancer the next day. There's a 25-year lag generally between smoking and developing lung cancer. We think there might be a similar lag between environmental exposures and the subsequent development of Parkinson's disease. As people live longer, uh, that allows more time for the disease to become manifest and compensatory mechanisms in, in, in us are likely uh, lose their effectiveness over time. So a very strong message in your book is that Parkinson's may be a man-made disease. So uh, can you comment on what sort of factors could influence something like environmental pollutants? Yes. Uh, so uh, the concept of man-made diseases uh, stems from a paper by an epidemiologist, Abdul Omran, in 1971. And he said that initially humans died of uh, famine, not enough food. Uh, that was followed by the agrarian revolution, and which provided food for the vast majority of humans. Then we died of infectious diseases like the bubonic plague and the influenza pandemic. And then he says, currently we live in the age of degenerative and man-made diseases. And so the classic man-made disease is lung cancer. Uh, and the, uh, before the advent of cigarettes, lung cancer was considered a once-in-a-lifetime oddity. Doctors never thought they would see another case. In, uh, and so they all gathered around any time a case came in. And Parkinson's disease was very rare uh, when Dr. Parkinson was describing it in 1817. He was describing something that had not been uh, classified in the medical literature, according to him. And so numerous environmental risk factors have been linked to Parkinson's disease, including air pollution, uh, heavy metals, certain pesticides, and industrial chemicals like trichloroethylene. If you think about what's happening in London in 1817, it's the height of the Industrial Revolution, England's the capital, and the London fog had little to do with weather and everything to do with air pollution. The pollution was so thick you couldn't see across the street. Men, women, and children would cover their mouths like they do today in Beijing to protect themselves from the adverse health effects of uh, air pollution. And the area of the world that has the fastest increasing rates of uh, Parkinson's disease today 
uh, are those undergoing the most rapid industrialization, such as China and India. So am I right uh, then to say that uh, Parkinson's can actually affect younger and younger people who might be exposed to large doses of environmental pollutants, something like you mentioned, or others like DDT or Agent Orange, Paraquat, perhaps Maneb? We need more data. Uh, so a paper from about 10 to 15 years ago suggested that only 4% of individuals with Parkinson's developed the symptoms, of, uh, developed the disease before age 50. Many people think that's a too small number. In the book, we highlight the stories of individuals affected by the disease. One is Danny Fromm, who worked with this chemical called trichloroethylene uh, beginning out of high school. And then in his 30s, he developed a twitching in his right pinky finger and was subsequently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Today, I think he's still only in his 40s, lives in Idaho uh, with his wife and uh, uh, children um, and is infected by the disease, likely due to his exposure to uh, the chemical trichloroethylene when he was a, a very young man. Uh, what really stri uh, struck a chord with me uh, was uh, the story of one of the women in your book who was a completely healthy athlete, the runner, and she developed the, uh, symptoms of uh, Parkinson's. And uh, if, yeah. mm -hmm. Go ahead. And even for myself, when I used to live in Wales, I uh, discovered that the town just nearby was actually the site of the dump of uh, old uh, radioactive waste. So can you just uh, comment a little bit on that? Because in your book as well, you mentioned that you, you uh, found that you were living to a very close site of the radioactive waste. Yeah, not radioactive waste, but this chemical called trichloroethylene, uh, TCE, widely used as a degreasing agent, widely used in whiteout, uh, um, as commercial degreaser, jet fuel uh, cleaner, uh, anything to do with transportation it's been used in. It was used to decaffeinate coffee in the 1970s. One study estimated that 8%, 8 of uh, workers in England had worked with the chemical. And there are hundreds and thousands of these uh, contaminated sites throughout the U.S. and around the world. And I found one 15 minutes away uh, from my home uh, that was uh, was a gravel pit where someone had dumped uh, this chemical. And a person living in that neighborhood uh, had run up the hill uh, by this uh, contaminated site three times a week. And then one day noticed that she could no longer run up the hill. And she was subsequently diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And we don't know if it's related to the chemical or, or running by the site. Uh, this chemical is often poured directly into the ground uh, and then it can contaminate groundwater. So up to 30% of groundwater in the United States is contaminated with trichloroethylene, also known as TCE. And then the, it forms these underground plumes and these plumes can then evaporate uh, the TCE into the air and enter people's homes, workplaces, schools, uh, undetected. And we're in the process of evaluating a, a potential cluster of Parkinson's disease in Rochester, New York, that might be related to this. Um, so uh, this is a very real risk uh, affecting large numbers of uh, individuals because large numbers of us live near these sites 
And uh, I found, as I alluded to, uh, one 15 minutes from my home. This really reminds us how mindful we should be about our our immediate environment, isn't it? Because quite often we just don't even know that these sites are so close to us. Yes, and the nice thing is that this is, can be treatable. So the treatment for these uh, uh, for people who live near these uh, contaminations is you can just take a, a, a pump that sucks air from underneath the foundation of your home and then releases the contaminated air above your home. Much like people test their indoor air for radon, you can test your indoor air for trichloroethylene and, and, and install a remediation system. And we highlight in the book uh, how someone who lived a, across the street from a contaminated site under the current headquarters of Google because TCE was used by Intel and Fairchild Semiconductor uh, to clean silicon wafers. And they had contaminated the site where Google's headquarters currently live. The woman who lived across the street had uh, her indoor air contaminated with TCE and now has a TCE remediation system. And she says she has the cleanest air in all of Mountain View, California. So this is a treatable and remediable and addressable way to prevent people from ever developing Parkinson's disease. And in the case of trichloroethylene, it's a carcinogen by all routes of exposure. So you can even prevent people from developing cancer. We just need to come up with that one, get educated and two, come up with the will and drive uh, to make these changes. This is fascinating that uh, at least some of the cases can be actually preventable and we can do something about it. Absolutely. We say that Parkinson's disease is not inevitable. It's a preventable condition. Mm-hmm. So, uh, At least some cases. <laughs> yeah. So can we talk about the cases where it's not preventable? So something like familial PD. Yeah, so about 15% of people uh, have a family history of a Parkinson's disease, a, a, a parent or sibling with the disease. In about 15% of cases, we can identify a known genetic risk factor for the disease. Uh, the most common of these is a, a mutation in a gene called LARC2, L-R-R-K-2, or a mutation in a gene called GBA. Uh, two mutations in that gene can cause a different disease called Gaucher's disease. But these uh, uh, genetic mutations, are many of them are known to have interactions with environmental factors like pesticides. So we know that in the laboratory setting that uh, cells that carry a mutation with one of these genes, um, when they interact with pesticides, lead to even greater neuronal loss. So it's likely that there is an important gene environmental in- interaction underlying many cases of uh, Parkinson's disease. So for the general population, what would you what do you think? Is it actually necessary to get a genetic testing for these mutations? Uh, uh, um, so uh, there's a study uh, that's looking at this. Uh, it's called PD Generation. It's being sponsored by the Parkinson's Foundation, and it's uh, engaged in ena- enabling broader access to genetic testing and genetic counseling. Uh, for individuals uh, who might be might have a family history of a Parkinson's disease, and to address these questions, I think we're seeing in the setting of the COVID pandemic the great value of having diagnostic testing. If we knew who had uh, was infected with COVID and who didn't, if we had broad, uh, widely available testing, we'd be able to address the pandemic far more effectively and with far more disruption to everyone's lives. Now, knowing that not everyone wants to know that they're at risk for Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease or cancer, 
I think a lot of that's predicated on what action can be taken based on that information and what protections are in place to protect individuals who do learn of these consequences. Uh, in the United States, we have something called the Genetic Information Non-Discriminatory Act, which protects individuals in employment and health insurance uh, based on genetic and family history, but those protections do not extend to life insurance or long-term care insurance, for example. We also have, as humans, a um, maybe not one of our best characteristics is we tend to stigmatize or separate individuals um, based on their health characteristics. In the book, we quote uh, a caregiver of someone with Parkinson's disease who said, the first thing that happens uh, after you get Parkinson's disease is that your phone stops ringing. I think we have to be more accepting of uh, people regardless of their genetic risks. And as more and more people know about their genetic risks, I think our behavior towards all these individuals and towards ourselves collectively will have to change. Mm -hmm. So then in terms of treatment and management of the conditions, so what are the general treatments that are available or are on the horizon? Uh, so if someone has Parkinson's disease, I routinely recommend uh, two things. One is exercise. There have been increasing evidence that exercise, vigorous exercise, can, one, prevent people from ever developing the disease. So vigorous exercise in your 40s and 50s, three and a half to four hours a week of running or swimming, for example, can decrease your risk of developing Parkinson's disease a decade later by 20%. In addition, numerous studies have demonstrated uh, the value of exercise for people with the disease, Everything from Tai Chi to yoga to cycling to running to tango have been evaluated and generally been shown to be a benefit. So exercise is a key component of treating Parkinson's disease and likely a key component to preventing the disease in the first place. Second is uh, Parkinson's disease is due at a high level to loss of nerve cells in the brain that produce a chemical called dopamine. Uh, in the 19, that was identified in the 1950s. In the 1960s, a drug called levodopa, a precursor to dopamine, was found to be highly effective for people with Parkinson's disease. And today, 50 years later, the most effective treatment for Parkinson's disease medication remains levodopa. In the book, we highlight that we need uh, 50 years later to come up with new novel treatments that treat the underlying course of the disease, underlying pathology of the disease, maybe target some of these genetic causes of the disease and have fewer side effects than levodopa has. And what about the surgical intervention? So uh, at the later stages of disease, something like deep brain, uh, brain stimulation or transplantation of uh, dopaminergic uh, iPSC-derived neurons, are these uh, um, techniques already available to people or...? So uh, Dr. David Marsden, uh, the late Dr. David Marsden, a, a prominent neurologist in England, said that there were two miracles uh, for Parkinson's disease that he had witnessed. The first was the uh, discovery of levodopa as a medical treatment for Parkinson's disease. The second was deep brain stimulation, a surgical treatment for Parkinson's disease. In deep brain stimulation, uh, electrodes are passed down deep into different targets uh, in the brain. One is something called the subthalamic nucleus which is inappropriately overactive in Parkinson's disease, and the deep brain stimulation can um, dampen the output of this uh, nerve cell center in the brain and substantially improve uh, Parkinson's disease symptoms for a subset of individuals with the disease. Uh, that treatment is widely available in the United States uh, and, and in Europe. 
There have been studies looking at replacing the dopamine cells that are lost by transplanting uh, those, uh, tr tr transplanting fetal cells, for example, into the brains of individuals with Parkinson's. Those studies, when conducted about 20 years ago, uh, largely failed to show any significant benefit or consistent benefit. Uh, there are ongoing uh, efforts to to reevaluate uh, those approaches and perhaps uh, start them again. Uh, I would just point out that we in Western society love to cure diseases, but it's far better to never have the disease in the first place. So it's, it's important to develop new treatments for the disease, but it's far more important to prevent people from ever developing the diseases in the first place. I just assume never have breast cancer than to be cured of breast cancer. And we've done that for polio. We've prevented, you know, thousands or millions of people from ever developing HIV by changing our behavior. Uh, we've cured two people in the history, uh, two people ever of HIV. So I think we need to make sure that one central thrust of the book is that the first element of ending Parkinson's disease is to prevent the, the disease. This is an excellent point, and perhaps the more, most riveting part of the book that I found is the specific steps and recommendations that you actually make of what to do and how to end Parkinson's disease. So can you tell me uh, why is the investigation and basic research important? I think we need to figure out what's causing Parkinson's disease. We provide, a, a, I think, a strong case that numerous environmental factors are driving it. But investment in prevention, uh, investment studies, large-scale studies to identify the environmental risk factors for Parkinson's disease and to determine what the level of risk is and how we can mitigate that risk are lacking. Uh, for example, in the United States, until recently, we only had a couple states that even had registries of everyone with Parkinson's disease. One in Nebraska, for example, found that the rates in the rural parts of Nebraska were two to four times higher for Parkinson's disease than in cities like Omaha. So um, we need larger scale studies, uh, epidemiological studies to uh, better address what these environmental risk factors. And we need to investigate clusters of Parkinson's disease where they exist. And then uh, we also need additional basic science to evaluate the impact of these pesticides and chemicals like trichloroethylene on uh, models of uh, Parkinson's disease. We should focus on trying to prevent people from ever developing these debilitating diseases. Mm -hmm. So you make a case for investigation, you make a case for prevention, and also you make a very strong case for the advocacy. So can you tell me why do we need Parkinson's disease advocates from patients and also their carers, but also from people who perhaps are not affected by the disease, but just members of community? Uh, yeah, well, members of the community are stand most to gain from never developing uh, Parkinson's disease. Uh, people with the disease, uh, you know, people with the disease who are engaged in prevention and advocacy are doing it for their friends, families and children. Uh, all of us stand from not developing a debilitating disease that we could develop at 65 and have for the last 18 years of our life. So someone, typical person with Parkinson's disease develops it at age 65 and then has it for 18 years. That's equivalent to saying every Monday or Tuesday of your life, from the time you're born, the time you die, you have Parkinson's disease. I think no one wants that. It's in all of our interest to figure out what we can do to prevent ourselves from ever developing the disease. At the same time that the number of Americans with the disease has increased 35% over the last decade, NIH funding 
adjusted for inflation has actually decreased for Parkinson's disease. Same time, the number of people with the disease has increased 35%. NIH funding adjusted for inflation has decreased. We needed to change the course uh, of this disease. It falls first on those most directly affected with the disease to make their voices heard and then to engage the broader community in our efforts to help end the disease. We've seen that with polio. We've seen that with HIV. More recently, we've seen that with breast cancer. We can change the course of these diseases with collective action if we make our voices heard and we have a strong and primary focus on containing the pandemic and preventing people from ever developing the disease. These are very staggering numbers. And as I understand, we are looking at even increase in these numbers in developing uh, countries as well. So interesting uh, point that you made, uh, which I did not consider before, is that most of the patients who already have the disease, they they, uh, would like to stay at home and manage their disease at home. So in terms of care systems, system, what do you think we need to improve? Um, so as I alluded to at the outset, we need to care for anyone affected with Parkinson's disease anywhere that they live. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bastian Bloom has come up with something called ParkinsonNet, the world's largest Parkinson's disease expert care model that trains therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists, and 20 different other clinicians on how to provide uh, care to individuals with Parkinson's disease and preferentially directs people with Parkinson's disease to these trained experts. So not only they have training, but they gain experience and so that their proficiency in caring for people with Parkinson's disease increases. And we tell the story in the book of individuals uh, who have benefited from his care model. We need to expand that care model, uh, not just for people in the Netherlands and in Norway and the few people in the U.S. who are benefiting it. We need to expand it throughout Europe, throughout uh, North America, and you know, to areas of Southeast Asia where rates of Parkinson's disease are growing dramatically. We think that telemedicine can enable people to receive care in their home. They can do it off a laptop computer. They can do it off a tablet. And for much of the world, they could do it off a, off a smartphone. Uh, we highlight in the book that there are now new technologies, wrist-worn devices, smartwatches, and smartphones that can likely determine when somebody has Parkinson's disease. So you could press an app on your phone in a not-too-distant future where you could say, do I have Parkinson's disease? And based on assessments, whether that's voice or a speeded tapping test or an assessment of gait, determine if you're at high likelihood or low likelihood of having Parkinson's disease, and then connect you, importantly, to clinicians, a nurse uh, who can uh, help uh, start caring for you uh, with your disease. Parkinson's Net. Parkinson Net is uh, an excellent resource and, bo- and model. So uh, I do I do believe that it should be taken a little bit more widely and employed in different countries. So can you then tell me, so do you think we do have a great chance of ending Parkinson's if we implement all of these and possibly some extra measures? If we have creativity and will, we can end Parkinson's disease we can end the vast majority of cases of Parkinson's disease with creativity and will. We have the knowledge now that tells us what can be done. We know that farmers are at 50 to 200% increased risk of developing Parkinson's disease. 50 to 200% increased risk. A traditional report like in the New York Times that says that so something increases the risk of cancer, that's usually 20%. 
We know that farmers are 50 to 200% increased risk of Parkinson's disease. We know that certain pesticides are nerve toxins. We know that certain pesticides are nerve toxins that dissolve in the fat. We have even found remnants of these nerve toxins, pesticides in the brains of individuals with Parkinson's disease. We know which pesticides are likely contributing to Parkinson's disease. We need to ban them. We need to get them at, we need to test the well water, the water that people are drinking. 40 million Americans get their water from wells, not municipal or county water, but wells on their own property. Those wells are often not tested or tested infrequently, and people could be drinking contaminants, pesticides, or trichloroethylene and uh, contributing to their an increased risk of Parkinson's disease. We have lots of information on what we can do to prevent people from ever developing the disease. If we generate the will and come up with creative solutions, we can prevent thousands, if not millions, from ever developing this debilitating disease. These are great news. We cannot tackle something that we don't know, but at least some aspects were really starting to get much uh, uh, wider picture in the Parkinson's, isn't it? Yes. Okay, so Ray, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell me what are you working on now? Um, so we're investigating a cluster of uh, individuals with Parkinson's disease uh, near where we live in Rochester, New York, and trying to find out if there are environmental causes for it. And most importantly, out of this book, what we want is to galvanize the Parkinson's community and the broader community, uh, all your listeners, to action. Uh, collective action changed the course of polio. Collective action changed the course of HIV. Collective action is changing the course of breast cancer. Collective action is changing the course of the coronavirus. After we address the coronavirus pandemic, we need to turn our attention to Parkinson's disease and other conditions and engage in collective action to change the course of these diseases. No one wants to spend the last 18 years of their life with a debilitating condition that robs them of robs them of independence. We can change the course of disease. We can prevent people from ever getting Parkinson's disease. We can put Boss and Michael Oaken and Todd Scher and the Michael J. Fox Foundation and me out of business, and we can think of no better thing to do than that. This is such a strong and clear message. So can you tell us where our listeners can find more information about these resources, also about your work and the book? Uh, so they can find out all they want to know about the book at endingpd.org. Uh, uh, importantly, all the authors are devoting their proceeds to efforts to end Parkinson's disease. So we're not driving any direct financial benefit from the book. We've written it, the book and dedicated the book to those who bear the burden of the disease and to those who will help end the disease. Uh, your listeners can order the book right now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, if they're part of a support group, they can order bulk orders at, uh, beginning at like 25 uh, uh, copies at $15 a book through BookPal and Porchlight. Uh, one first step that we can do to change the course of the disease is increase awareness, buy the book, uh, learn more about the Parkinson's disease, read the stories about people who are affected by the disease, raise some money uh, to help us uh, end Parkinson's disease and uh, become educated and see what advocacy actions you can take to decrease the risk for you and yourselves and your community around you. Excellent. So I really enjoyed our conversation today. So thank you very much for joining us and take care and stay safe. 
Perfect. And if people want to have questions, they want to contact us, they can just email us directly at info at endingpd.org or again, visit our website, endingpd.org. Thanks very much, Galena.